Welcome to another, well, pretty fantastic episode, I would say. Yes, Happy New Year. Happy New Year episode of RVA Dirt's Municipal Mania. Mania, 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 mania. Heard every Wednesday at 11 a.m. right here on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. Hi, Fran. Hey. We're here. We're <laughs> we're, we're alive. Barely. We're alive. We barely, we, we squeaked into <laughs> the, new year. the new year uh, with a chest cold and a stomach bug, but uh, here we are. We're here. We're here uh, because, of course, we're here. If, uh, if we weren't, we'd be lax in our duties to our community. Exactly. Hmm. We got enough of that already. <laughs> right. We're excited to... To kick off 2020 with a very special guest. All of our guests are very special, but this one is actually, we're real excited. Yes, because we've been trying to talk about this for like ever. Forever. We're on our 86th episode, so. Wow. Yeah. We'd like our guest to introduce himself. Well, first of all, I just want to say I'm a fan of RVA Dirt and everything that you all do. I've been like so standing y'all for the last two years or so. It's so exciting to just see y'all burst on the scene with... (laughs) The facts and the persona <laughs> and just bringing the real energy is is, is, is a good look. Um, thank you. Thank you very much. It. I'm Deron Chavis, um, community engagement manager at Lewis Skinner Botanical Garden, community advocate, activist, uh, healer, work cultural worker, been in this work in the city for ooh, almost 20 years now. Okay. And I was about to say, you are so much. To yes. the city, yeah, I've been in it, man, and it's 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 my work lives in a space of um, critical analysis as well as boots on the ground. Yes, you know we um, we, we critique the city and you know some of the things that go on, uh, but we're also contributors to the positive good. So. Mm-hmm. I, I, I like to just start off to say that any opinions that I state today are those of my own and not of my employers. Okay. Got to make sure, you know, just like that Twitter yeah. disclaimer. Yeah, it's a little disclaimer. I've got it on my Twitter, all my social. Just, yeah, because uh, y'all act the damn fool because y'all silly about it. <laughs> I'm going to go call Lewis Ginger. I'm going to tell him what Duran said. Yeah, uh, they do that, though. But oh, it's I all, know they do. We all, know. <laughs> it's all gravy. So I work in urban ag, and I work in urban greening, and I help communities transform the built environment. And, um, you know, I really believe in the mission of, of the garden, which is to connect people through plants to improve communities. I'm rooted in, you know, my blackness unapologetically okay and so um yeah i'm 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 i'm, I'm excited to be here this is a this is a great way to study y'all yeah yes. well tell us a little bit about how you got here where you grew up um and your influences to kind of get you to this point yo uh wow thanks that's a wide mm-hmm. runway um mm-hmm. i'm a native richmonder I'm from Southside. I was raised off of Hopkins Road. So the 8th District is where I got my manhood, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. I have been engaged in this work since I was in my early 20s. I started off really learning a lot about black history by volunteering at the Black History Museum and Cultural Center of mm-hmm. Virginia. Uh, before it was on Lee Street, this is when it was at 00 Clay Street under the leadership of Charles Bethay and Mary Lauderdale. I volunteered there long enough and worried the leadership there enough <laughs> uh, that they eventually gave me a job. Mm-hmm. You know, that was like one of my first real career moments, you know, being in a space where I gave tours about the history of Richmond. Mm. Um, Jackson Ward, particularly, that's what we did every day mm-hmm. was no matter what the exhibit was, we always introduced our tours with the story of Black Wall Street, the stories of black business, uh, the stories of urban renewal, redlining, education, separate but equal, all that stuff. So like, the story of Richmond. The story of Richmond. Yeah, <laughs> we did that Every day out of that, being a coordinator, you know, and, 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 and wanting to do programming, I started a festival while at the uh, museum, Happily Natural Day, which yes. was founded in 2003. Now in its 17th year, we have been traversed around up and down the East Coast. We held the festival here in Richmond consistently, uh, but we also had, you know, a whole run in Atlanta with all of the good people from FTP or Feed the People, Kalanji Jamachanga and his squad. I've been a, a member of many different organizations, but most importantly, I was um, in my early years, I started off as a, a Garveyite Cub, what we call uh, Garvey Cub. Uh, Marcus Garvey founded the Universal mm-hmm. Negro Improvement Association, and I cut my teeth on organizing as a member of that organization for all of my 20s 
and 30s and by virtue of that met brothers and sisters that Mm -hmm. are connected to the movement in very real ways intergenerationally from um, as far north as Canada as far down south as Florida you know brothers and sisters uh, from uh, the civil rights and black liberation movement up to my peers you know in their 20s and 30s I tell people that I knew Umar uh, Johnson before he became like this meme. <laughs> <laughs> so it's funny, but oh, um, but anyway, you know. Uh, so I just been in this work, man, and um, I'm 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 now living in the space of urban ag. In 2008, through the Happily Natural Day Festival, I got connected to Black farmers. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, they had always been around through the Happily Natural Day movement, but they became kind of my mentors. You know, uh, shout out to Renard Turner of Vanguard Ranch. He was one of the primary uh, influences around me getting engaged in a conversation about food, mm-hmm. local food, um, black food, uh, black farmers in particular. And it was through that engagement we started doing pop-up farmers markets, before we started, Shaw told you how I used to work at social services. Mm-hmm. And so while I was at social services, I was actually running a pop-up farmer's market in Churchill that moved into Brooklyn Park and, mm-hmm. um, you know, Barton Heights or what have you. And that evolved into us starting gardens mm-hmm. around the city. Um, the first one was in Bon Air, uh, well, Woodland Heights. Mm-hmm. And, you know. I can go keep going. I mean, Renew Richmond is where I really uh, did a lot of good work with my brother, John Lewis. We were one of the uh, youngest and only African-Americans that were running urban agriculture programming in the city um, Mm. in 2013, 14, 15. Um, Started working at Virginia State University Mm -hmm. where I did indoor ag manage the transformation of a YMCA into an indoor farm. So, you know, my life, has been in dedication to service uh, to the community. Um, but the last, I'd say, the last 12 years, 10, 12 years, has been really an immersion in the world of food justice and land justice mm-hmm. and how important it is for African communities in particular to reconnect to food and reconnect to land. You know, the trajectory or the narrative of black people in this country, we were brought here as, you know, uh, labor, uh, but we were not brought here to be owners. Mm-hmm. Right. And so once the Civil War ended, you know, and black people were freed, you know, there were some conversations about reparations that looked like 40 acres and a mule for Mm. some folks. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, we know when Lincoln was assassinated, that maneuvered out of Mm -hmm. position and black people were... Uh, the land that was supposed to have been given to black folks was actually given to the folks that that seceded from the country. Mm -hmm. And those black people were then charged by to actually work for the folks that they were formerly enslaved by, by mm-hmm. through tenant farming and sharecropping or what have you. Mm-hmm. So, you know, new age slavery. New age slavery, right? So what we're what we're still challenged with here, you know, four hundred years later or, you know, a hundred and some odd years later if you want to do the math on it. Is a conversation about land, about ownership, about power, about control of your own communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's kinda like where I live at in in this in this uh, in this work is trying to connect our communities to forms of economic development that revolve around control of community land mm-hmm. that also connect folks with food as because every my my philosophy is that everybody eats right mm-hmm. and that if since everybody eats the question is who do you get your food from mm-hmm. mm. um, one of my elders says there's no culture without agriculture so while we talk about the economics we're also talking about cultural mores in our community getting people reconnected to nature getting people connected to self-determination through not only business development but just really institution mm-hmm. building and um, I, I'm, I'm of the mindset that urban gardening urban farming kind of is a foundational way of reconnecting communities to ways to engage each other Mm -hmm. you know uh, you know we might can talk about circular economies and how we can keep dollars circulating in our communities through Mm -hmm. the development of businesses that are oriented around food or value-added products and how that connects to all these other sectors whether it be housing environmental justice even down to just public health and in general 
Mm-hmm. I'm starting to ramble, but no, no, no. <laughs> I love how we don't actually have to pull teeth to get you to talk about this mm. stuff. It's really nice because you you know your shit. Oh, um, mm-hmm. it, it's it's a breeze. Like this is gonna be great. It's actually refreshing <laughs> because you and I talk about this, and we don't know nearly as half as much as Duran knows. Great, and we talk about this all the time. All the time. Mm-hmm. All like, the time. This is one of our favorite types of conversation. So yeah, mm-hmm. I'm stoked to see where the rest of this goes. So like, so I'm gonna jump in and I'm yeah, gonna, do I'm it. Gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna throw this out here. I wanted I wanted to come on here today because I wanted to talk about like the work that we're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and you know, y'all have been bearing witness to us promoting this stuff on mm-hmm. socials, Twitter, and things yep. like that. But I work at Lewis Ginner yeah. Botanical Garden, mm-hmm. which is a major cultural institution in the city, in the region, in the state, I might even, state, yeah. you know, uh, be so uh, courageous to, to posit. But the garden has been wrestling with its whiteness <laughs> and trying to, you yeah. know, undo the its perception as just being this place specifically, you know, tailored to, you know, white folks in the community. Mm-hmm. Um you know, so they're working hard on their inclusion strategy, on their diversity, on their uh, equity work and accessibility. And there's a lot of stuff going on internally at the garden that is making it way more accessible and way more relevant for communities that are not normally identified with going to the botanical mm, garden. That's big. Um, and I've been there for three years. And so the, my baby, the work that I've been doing for the last three years has been the iteration of this training program called the Ginter Urban Gardener. Program. And so I wanted to share a, a, a little bit about that. Please. And hopefully, yeah. you know, that would. Because um, the deadline for sign up is coming up at the end of this month. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Get yeah. it yeah. out there. Um, the, the, the Ginner Urban Gardener Program is a 12 week training program that teaches sustainable horticulture, agriculture, urban garden design, um, and community organizing. Essentially, we really try to get people to take ownership of public spaces and do green things on them, whether it be food or beautification or stormwater management or addressing urban heat islands, mm-hmm. whatever, our vision is that none of those solutions or none of those impacts or functions of the space mean anything if the community is not tied the to them. Yeah. yeah, doesn't have buy-in on it. So mm-hmm. I train people to help spark and be catalysts for that buy-in. And I, th- I think that's important because I do that through the lens of this. You absolutely do. Of mm-hmm. this botanical garden with, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the critiques of the system as it, as, it, as, it, as it stands. The training program gives folks an opportunity to actually develop spaces and communities and so I, I get to work with a wide variety of different people. I mean, it's in a, it, it, if you get into the Ginter Urban Gardener program, one thing that I will say that it is intentionally inclusive. Like, mm-hmm. so when we recruit, we're like, yo, we're not going to have too many white folks. We're not going to have too many black folks. It's going to be a blend. It's mm-hmm. not going to be just men. It's not going to be just women. It's mm-hmm. not going to be just folks that make $60,000 or more. It's not mm-hmm. going to just be college grads. It's going to be a wide array. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I, I put that in the in the f- front of our conversation today because um, I think it's important for people to understand that there are ways that institutions can address racial equity, you know, doing what it is they do best, and they can center, you know, communities of color uh, or most affected communities, and it still have positive outcomes, and mm-hmm. they can be uh, effective by using their lens, right, and stay in their lane. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, um, I, I, I tell people all the time is that if Lewis Ginner can hire, you know, someone that's radically left, you know, rooted in community, and then as a result start to develop people Mm -hmm. right and places that that has huge repercussions for the entire region because that means that you know this traditionally oligarchical space Mm -hmm. where you know the first families of virginia have invested their money to develop this space Mm -hmm. if they can turn around and say hey you know we want to make an impact in our com- in the in the greater community, but we're going to do it instead of being paternalistic and grass tops. We're yep. going to walk with the community. I think that that's that that has huge. I think that there's other institutions that can take that lead mm-hmm. and, and and can look at that as an example and not feel afraid or uh, feel you know apprehension towards engaging with community and walking with community so yeah that that's 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 one of the big things i wanted to kind of like preface 
mm-hmm. our conversation with is that I'm, I'm, I'm doing this work today as an unapologetically black man mm-hmm. in a predominantly white space mm-hmm. that is holding space for communities to iterate the realities that they see fit, right? And that's a total shift in the way that Richmond has operated. You know what I mean? I and and the key word, he hasn't said it, but I'll go ahead and say it in a genuine way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's yeah. that's the key right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I Cause, I definitely... Cause a lot of companies are trying to do it, mm. but they are doing knickknack paddywhack. Nope. Right. Hey. <laughs> we curse? Uh, oh yeah, yes. We can uh-huh. curse. Oh, oh, yeah. oh, this is a this is a plain talk uh safe <laughs> zone. This is a safe space, man. Yes. So please, please Hell feel yeah. free to Okay, uh, thank you for the green light. Yes. yes. No. This is a safe space, man. <laughs> we always want people to freely speak. What's yeah. my what's my nickname? She's my censorship okay. tester. Okay. Um so she Let's challenges go. me every week on uh, <laughs> on my yeah. creative censorship. Oh yeah. So it's always like a game. <laughs> it's become a she game. Covers, she covers the words with different Well also though, I just sound bite. We believe though, why restrain yourself? Yeah. Um, yeah just no if you're passionate about something, the words that come out of you should also uh, be equal to that passion. Right. So and sometimes that means you got to drop an F bomb. I mean, it's whatever. Hey, let's go. Listen. So I just wanted to say that um, over the past few years listening to you speak, I've found you to be an excellent educator. Thank you. I think that's that's something that sometimes is lacking in activism or whatever is the education part of it. Like we were talking about offline. It's not just about when we're talking about urban agriculture. It's not just about throwing seeds in the ground and, hmm. you know, having food shoved in your face at right. that point or whatever. Race and class always come into play. Certainly. Yeah. Especially in Richmond. Right. I'd like you to expand upon that. When you go and speak to groups, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. what is it that you zero in on so, first to teach people? You know, it's funny because talking about the Getting Urban Gardener program, when people come to the class, mm-hmm. you know, they come thinking, oh, I'm going to learn how to grow some food and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> everybody's going to eat healthy. They're going to show me some new stuff. <laughs> I ain't never known before about growing up tomato. Right, like, right. Yeah, so know. there's a lot of there's a lot of there's a lot of analysis that hasn't been critically examined. Right. Mm-hmm. A lot of folks think that if you you know create a community garden, then you're addressing the fact that people don't have access to healthy food, and that is true in some ways. But before we even can get to that, let's talk about how did this community come to not have access to healthy food yeah, in the first place? We got to get talk yep. about how we got here. Yeah. So our first class in the uh, training program deals with. Uh, concentrated poverty. If I had more time with our trainees, then we could go back and talk about Jim Crow, Mm. um, slavery. We could talk about colonialization. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Imperialism. Right. But we only got 12 weeks. So (laughs) (laughs) we got to condense it. And it's it's a lot to cover, even if we are talking about redlining. So that's where we start. Mm -hmm. We talk about, you know, the 1950s Fair Housing Administration and the New Deal and how communities were discriminated against and that took money out mm-hmm. of black communities because of the lack of investment. You know, the, the whole idea of the New Deal was that people can buy houses and mortgages and that would help build equity and folks could then start businesses with the equity and buy new houses but and start businesses. But only certain people could But only do certain that. people could right. do that. So that, we use that as a bookmark to start off the conversation because that helps you understand like the same maps of lack of food access are the same maps of neighborhoods that were redlined. Yes, right? indeed. And, you know, and why? And why, right? And then if you want to go back further, you know, it's important to understand that black people have mass migrated into cities or gone north, right? Mm-hmm. Into urban centers because of racial terrorism mm-hmm. in the South, right? Mm-hmm. And that racial terrorism looked like the Klan, but it also looked mm-hmm. like federal, state policies that absolutely you know yes. constricted people's mobility mm-hmm. constricted people's economic opportunity and then if you go back even further then you know we talk about slavery and the lack of reparations that occurred at, after the civil war ended or what have you so black people had all over the country created opportunities for themselves developing these black business districts so like jackson wards yep. the tulsas the rosewoods yep. you know all these places that systematically torn down. that were systematically torn down Burned by virtue down, of bombed. <laughs> by acts of racial terror mm-hmm. which a lot of times you know we could say yeah the lynchings and you know all that type of stuff was definitely you know we think about tulsa and the bombings mm-hmm. we just watched watchmen which the, with the illest depiction <sighs> of that right yeah. But I like to point to the more subtle forms of economic violence that occur, which is, you know, the highway 
systems Facts. that were constructed through almost every black district. district. If you look mm-hmm. look across the country with the federal highway creation, city after city after city. I thought I used to think it was just Richmond. I didn't know. No. Oh when man. I, when yeah. I was when I was working at the Black History yeah. Museum, I was like, yo, the, I'm thinking that it was just Mm-mm. Richmond. But as I got older and did and more research. Atlanta, Philadelphia. There's a reason yes. because of the you know that's those once you start reading about it, you can't less. stop and you find more and more that's and more. The yeah, property value that's valued exactly. the least. The city exactly. is going to lose the least exactly. if you just bulldoze right clean through that. Mm-hmm. Excellent book that talks about that is uh, the Color of Law. Yep. Um, and um, there's another book that just came out that um, is also kind of like talking about the opposite end of that and it's more about gentrification is um, how to kill a city. Mm. Um, so both of those books um, kind of talk about that. But we we do place an emphasis on race and place mm-hmm. um, because my belief is that if we're not discussing that, that is the, you know, that's the common factor no matter where you go. I do a lot of study and a lot of connecting with people all across the country about urban agriculture. And no matter where you go, whether it's black communities or Latino communities or Asian communities, all of them have been impacted by these racially disparate policies mm-hmm. and have been trying to, and in some ways have tried to reconcile that work through food and through the growing and active produ- participating in, uh, in, in, in the food system in some way. So our training program doesn't get too deep into the food system, but we do talk about how did we get here? How did it come to be that the community is concentrated in poverty and all that type of stuff? It's, it's impossible to discuss this stuff without discuss, yeah. without talking about that yeah it's like you'll you'll just be kind of like swimming in the superficialities of it if you if if you're not addressing those root causes did y'all hear about this wisconsin just passed uh this put down and said that uh racism uh, is an indicator for public health which yes yes which i thought was fascinating because i think um you know richmond has been talking around yep yeah this for for years, you know, um, mm-hmm. but nobody has really named it. So um, I think it's mm-hmm. um, I think it's super important to kind of have a racial equity lens as we address any of these issues. I mean, I, I live in a world of food access and food justice, but even if you're in housing or even if you're mm-hmm. in law or if you're in policing, if you're in uh, all of the above, all of the above, if you're not looking at it through a racial equity lens, then you know you're you're not going to get to the. If root it's problems. a system where power is existent, then there's a racial lens. Yeah, yeah. But thank you for that uh, uh, compliment. I try to teach. I feel like that's integral to our democracy. It is that if people don't have the information to make a decision, then they're gonna make you know a, uh, a, a, they're gonna have a failed analysis. It's well, like true. not everybody's a gifted teacher. You know what I mean? But you are, and I, you. I feel like you should know that. All right, I yeah. appreciate that. I think that's the first that's the the first time I encountered you. You were teaching. You were speaking at the history series at the Valentine. Yes. Uh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Wow. And I think yeah. that was the first time I encountered you a couple of years ago. Yeah. 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 And yeah. Um, I I was t- live tweeting and somebody took my tweet and like tried to go run at you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> at Lewis yes, Kenner. Remember that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, what the hell is wrong with y'all? I'm going to this brother up. And y'all. Messing it nope. all over it. But let me, yeah, but let me tell you, though, this is the this is the reality I live in. Grounded in the historical data. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, we carry out our program and training, you know, and, 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 you know, make our decisions as to how we delegate and relegate resources out into community. But sometimes people don't like the historical data. No. <laughs> we live in a... No, because it oh. hurts. If you, if, you, if you really listen to certain people, if you really listen to what that data is, and if you really listen to how you may have impacted or how right. you may personally, right to this day, still mm-hmm. be a part of the impact to that data... People oh, don't it like hurts that. to have a mirror held up to you. But you know what? This is the thing. There's a difference between history and memory, hmm. right? So history is one thing, but what people remember mm-hmm. is a whole nother. And hmm. so we live in a world where the history is what it is. Yeah, like, can't change that. That's yeah, there's that. journals. You know, VC, we, we live in the footprint of VCU. Like, right. you know, research galore. Like, you can go find all the documentation of everything right. that has happened mm-hmm. in the city. Valentine Museum. This is a history museum. But what people remember... Or how they remember. I was going to say how they choose to remember. remember. It's a totally different thing. And so what I've experienced in the years, um, in the last couple of years, really, has been this confrontation 
of people who like to remember things in a, a very, certain way. Right. In a very <laughs> cupcake and butterfly way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. It's, it's like we live in this world where people want to think that all that at some point in between the 80s and the 2000s. Right, that racism she just went out the window, and everything is fine. Like, yeah. and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm hard pressed to find. Like, what year was it? Yeah, like, and where was when I? When did we become post-racial? Yeah, oh, but where was I? Yeah. Because I was born in that time, and I don't remember that happening. I don't. I like, don't, I remember yeah. like I don't all those times. That. Like, I remember like where I was, like when nine eleven happened. Mm-hmm. Right. And I remember like right. where I was through all these different things. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. you know, but I don't remember the day that I got the call, exactly. and it was like <laughs> racism is gone. Right. It's not an issue. Hallelujah. And I was like, oh man, I can't. Re- <laughs> I, I don't recall that. I but don't that's that's that's, that's, a, that's a piece about the fragility which is for me is also a really interesting kind of place to navigate being at a predominantly white institution and watching uh folks that like to have this selective amnesia mm-hmm. uh engage with our work you know sometimes it's the more wealthier folks and sometimes it's not but sometimes the, yeah. these folks with selective amnesia <laughs> will challenge you know mm-hmm. the historical facts and i love you know, my executive director, Shane Tipper, he just got person of the year. So mm-hmm. and I and, and, and he's one of the very few folks that I've worked for that I've had a really kind of like deeper, intimate relationship with mm-hmm. in terms of like, you know, getting to know each other. And what's funny is like every time he tells me somebody has called him about something that I've said, <laughs> his first question. to I them, see these tweets on Twitter and it's all <laughs> every time I see it, I'm like, oh, his first question, though, is. Is what he said not true? Mm-hmm. Which ah, is a powerful ah, way of yes. engaging the conversation, yes. because then it has it, it kind of it kind of puts the other person in a position of having to either a uh-huh. you know reveal their hand or yep. or showcase what level of memory that they're engaging in in terms of this mm-hmm. the, uh, whatever we're talking about. So, for example, last year we uh, brought in Maliki Keeney from the Detroit Black Food Security Network. Mm. And um, he came and talked about the roots of black farmers uh, being discriminated against and how that plays a role in us developing equitable food systems in the black community and Mm -hmm. land ownership and how land was one of the first ways that people were discriminated against, you know, in terms of colonialization and Mm -hmm. slavery and everything. So there was an article that came out in the Richmond Times Dispatch and in it, you know, I talked about how they had just had a urban farm tour in Richmond and there were no black farms on on the tour. Right. Mm -hmm. And so all I said in the article was that there were no black farms on a tour. tour. And this caused whoever this person with angst to call our executive director and be like, oh, what he said, that's that was racist because there were black farms on the tour. And actually, there weren't. They were talking about where uh, were they? They were talking about um, I think they were talking about like Shalom Farm. There was a black person that worked at the farm. I was going to say they saw a black person in the farm and they went. Right. They assume it belongs to them. Exactly. But none of the farms were actually owned. Because they knew better. (laughs) They knew better. They saw a black person there. Right. And they were a plant. They were heated though. And and it was and it was like why are you why are you mad at me? Right. You should be more mad about You should be mad about the fact that there were no black Right. on the tour. Right. Why are you mad about the truth? So, you know, that that's the um, that's the place I get to navigate. I'm I'm trying to um, <laughs> be I, I I I used to be way more cannonball with with the things that I had to share, but I'm trying to be more strategic now mm-hmm. because I'm understanding the politics of telling mm-hmm. the truth. Mm-hmm. Um and when the you, politics of telling the truth. And who mm-hmm. hears you or how they hear you facts is more important than just so, saying what it. you say yeah, yeah. then just it's, saying it's, it it's it absolutely is yeah and so you know sometimes we got to talk about reading comprehension it's like, <laughs> you know maybe you didn't read that correctly oh my god i put a punctuation mark there's a comma there you know oh my god. um or even just people's uh lack of empathy or understanding of you know the historical data or just the contemporary reality i mean when we talk about f- lack of food access, that is one of the most resilient places of of of, of intolerance mm-hmm. that I've encountered. People uh, having these really weird ideas of what equality or inequality is, yeah, or even just their perception of black people or what black people should be doing. Mm-hmm. Like I had somebody, I had somebody argue with me in Northside, uh-huh. and it was a it was a person who lived in Northside. Uh-huh. We have a business in Northside. Yeah, yeah. 
and this white person, the, the, basically a ginger fire mm-hmm, in the neighborhood, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. going to argue with me. And I'm like, you know, wouldn't you like to have a grocery store mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. in your neighborhood? Like, I don't mean like a market. I mean like a actual grocery store. Right, right, right. And this person told me, if the people of this neighborhood that were here before me wanted a grocery store, they would fight harder to have one. Wow. Mm. And, and if they want free, huh. and if they want access to fresh foods, mm. the the yards in Northside are big enough and grassy enough. Wow. Oh. I came from Church Hill. Oh. And so <laughs> Huh. I I couldn't even have a lick of grass for my dog to pee on. Wow. Now I moved to Northside. That's fascinating. And I have a, right? <laughs> and I have a yard big enough to pot garden in. Wow. Okay, well. And I was like. Are you sharing? Okay. Nope. Fuck you and your pot garden. <laughs> and carry your ass back to Churchill because right. we don't want you. All right. So I had a I had a whole argument with somebody about what? whether or not Northside was a food desert or not. No. Oh my oh. God! Are you serious? Yeah, straight up. Like so, everybody was, wants to eat Da Vinci pa- uh, pizza. I mean, no. I'm not. Somebody I, was like, listen. "Yo, you could go to the uh, food line. I mean, uh, the was it Kroger what? on Lombardi? Yeah, you go to Kroger on Lombardi or the food line across the, food the line, line on, on the candy on line. On, she said, "So on those Azalea, are the t- yeah. right. This is like so because there's a uh, food line at the Azalea and a Kroger at Lombardi." That means that the entire north side has a okay. It's not. It's not okay. a. It's not a food desert. And you know, and that, that was this was before the Walmart had opened up. That's so amusing. But, which and which that Walmart is the anyway. Right. So Never mind. so anyway. So this is the, <laughs> so this is the challenge. So the definition of a food desert mm-hmm. is that it's a mile or more. Yep. But I don't even like using the definition because people don't can't can can't conceive of a mile Mm-mm. no you know what i mean so i'm like all right let's let's put it in 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 a, in a real world practical example so i used to live on chamberlain back in the day mm-hmm. i lived at um chamberlain and laburnum mm-hmm. so i tell the story of having to catch the bus to said food lion on azalea yep in order to make groceries right and so I said, well, that's a good little hike. That's a hump. Mm-hmm. Right. So at the time I had, you know, me and my my younger sons, my sons were way younger. They were like eight, nine mm-hmm. at the time. So I said, imagine single parent getting on a bus with the children, two kids. We're going to take the bus, which takes 30 to 45 minutes right. to get me there, to get to get you there. Then what are you going to buy in terms of groceries if you got both of your kids and you're on the bus? How much? You have to hold it and the groceries and your children. Yep. Right. So, and then get off the bus and then walk it is so to much. said house right. with said groceries right. and two children. And two little small children. Right. 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 So what happens is like when you put when you put it in that practical reality for folks, the folks that have a heart were like, "Damn, that's a lot to do." Or, to go or, or the people that understand the concept of not owning a car. Right. Yeah. Or not having access. Because everybody to doesn't have own, a car. Yeah, their yeah. own access to transportation or the luxury of exactly. having a trunk to exactly. put groceries in. Right. Exactly. Right? I mean, imagine exactly. trying to take, you know, a week's worth of food back to your house. Right. You on a you bus. Don't, you don't. You, you can't. Don't. You I don't, don't even want to. There's wanna, no way to you do don't. that. Three so people what, live in my house, and I don't even like yeah. taking that a week's worth of groceries to my car and putting them in there. Right. So this is so this is what exposed uh, another. Um, I had another person that was riled up about the food desert conversation, and they were like, "Well, folks can just walk." Oh, okay. To the store. To the store, and bring back one gallon of milk and a dozen. In of a eggs. snowstorm. Right. <laughs> right. Or in the rain. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Okay. Or I live in uh, Mike Jones District and I don't have a sidewalk. 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 So I'm going to get killed. Right. So I'm walking up Melothian. Let's go down Melothian Turnpike. Or Broad Rock. Or Broad Rock. <laughs> and I'm trying to figure out how to People get. People flying or by you at 55. Yeah. Okay. Right. Or okay. Warwick. You know what I mean? Like these are. So this is the, the, the challenge often is like trying to humanize. Because as black people, that's that's the process. We've been consistently that, dehumanized. Yeah. Right. So when you think of people that are living in these areas, they don't people don't conceive of black people as having Mm-mm. everyday human realities that oh. require, you know, what would you do? All these extra. Nobody things. ever thinks that. Yeah, Because you, know you can mean? get in your car right. in your Magoogamobile and drive to 
you know, Carytown right. and have the choice of four grocery stores. Exactly, right. exactly. So that's the that's and with the, a specialty grocery store with a specialty that, one. with a juice bar. Right, right. And then you know, or even or and then just put it in the other context of can I afford it? I could or or what's way more accessible? I can go to this corner store and buy a chicken box. You heard? Yep, having that's actually way more soda and some or Popeyes and get that three dollar and forty two cent chicken sandwich. Or when I go to the grocery store, I'm gonna buy like heavily processed stuff that keep for Mm -hmm. like. Weeks or that's weeks. not because you know I, I mean? ain't got time to put the two kids back on the bus and walk right. twelve miles right. to get there. And by in the, the time rain. you get home, how are you gonna cook dinner anyway? It's eight o'clock. Kids gotta go to bed. Yeah, <laughs> you mm. know. Or if don't, oh dear Lord, don't live in a food desert downtown. Oh uh, boy, because you might not have heat or electricity or, or food or a stove to cook on. There you go, because that's the ch- that's the challenge too. Some of these places don't even have. I remember. Look, I was hey, I've I've lived in Richmond. So I remember one time I was looking for an apartment, the uh, the apartments behind John Marshall mm. on Chamberlain. Yeah. Before they got all renovated or whatever, I went in there and the lady would try to give me an apartment for like six, $700 a month without no stove. How you going to cook? There was you no stove. On? A hot plate? Stove? There was like no a, stove. There was no stove. There was like efficiency. a- It was an efficiency. I was like, yo, this is crazy. Like, what am I supposed to do to- Hot plate. Hot plates, but that's a, that. But that's a reality. But people in the city. live with like hot you're plates. in a damn dorm. There's a lot but of places. People live mm-hmm. off of hot plates. Like no, no, that, like they live in efficiencies. Right. So that's the, this is the that's this is the on the ground reality that a lot of times the people that are making decisions, the people that are putting money up, the people that are passing policy are don't have an awareness of, and that's why it's so important to center the communities that are most affected because then they can take into consideration all of these factors and then mm-hmm. start to develop solutions that speak for them. And so the work that I'm trying to do in 2020 is like, we're working in Northside and we're working with the fact that Northside is lacking in healthy food options. Mm-hmm. And we love that there's a little, there is a little uh, market. Yeah, in the, on, on Brooklyn market. Park, there's a little mm-hmm. fresh food market, which yeah, right. what a relief, nice. right? There's yeah. a River City, River nice. City Market. Yeah, Shout out to, uh, <clears throat> to, to uh, Sister Satima. So what, we, what, what, what has come to the fore is that there's a lot of folks in community uh, in Northside that have realized the same thing. And so we have been meeting consistently for like the last six months. I need to get up on those meetings. Yeah, and it's actually powerful. So I I came in at the very front of it, front end of it, and you know it was like yo, I'm committed to to playing a role in this. And what has what has evolved is that the community members that have shown up have determined that there's some short term solutions that the, that can be iterated. Uh, so we're at this point working on uh, implementing a uh, farmers market. Yes. Right. Back in the day. Uh, I was telling you earlier, I used to do the pop-up farmer's market, so yeah. we're trying to bring that back. But this time with uh, an aggregation space, so mm. we, you know, we applied for some funding from the city, and yes. we are hopefully we're going to get it, that we'll be able to put in some space for farmers mm-hmm. uh, in the city, mm-hmm. as well as peri-urban around, you know, can drop off produce, and then folks that are in the community can actually sell said produce to members of the neighborhood, modified CSAs, and you know, value-added products and all that type of stuff. Um, so that short-term solution is, in my in, in the vision that we've been talking about, will help catalyze much more longitudinal solutions, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. the things that we've talked about. If there's a need for a grocery store, um, as everybody has already said, that there needs to be some place where folks can buy food. So in the meantime. What does it look like mm-hmm. for the north side, yeah. right? It, it, it might not be an Audi's. It might be a nonprofit grocery yeah. store it could be a co-op you know it might be yeah. a shared kitchen space something like that it could be any number of things i'm down for any solution so yeah so i'm I'm, I'm really excited about that work what that is allowing me to do is that with our training program with mm-hmm. the Ginter urban gardeners you know we're doing our cohorts in Northside. we did our last one in Northside. we're doing our next one in Northside. Mm-hmm. so the the vision is that these training programs, training individuals in the community around how to create green space that could affect change in this food system stuff mm-hmm. will hopefully help influence that's and catalyze yeah. this other stuff that's happening. You know, so there's people like Virginia Community Capital, American Heart Association, Northside Strong, mm-hmm. you know, all these folks, Richmond Food Justice Alliance, Groundworks, you know, Storefront, you know, Six Pick, and all these folks that are in Northside that are trying to figure out ways to address this food access issue. So my hope is that all of these different institutions focusing in or, on Northside organically, 
Mm-hmm. It wasn't like somebody like came up with a plan and said everybody needs to do this. It's like all these different disparate yeah. energies that were already in the area. Yeah. My hope is that that, that small-scale solution will help bleed into a larger, longer, yeah. uh, more sustainable uh, reality where even w- with um, the Maggie Walker Community Land Trust yeah. yes. having an emphasis on Northside, there's some talks about some properties that could be coming under the Maggie Walker Community Land Trust that could possibly be spaces for food-based businesses mm-hmm. and et cetera. So really cutting to the core as to why food is not accessible is really a conversation about poverty mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and power, right? Mm-hmm. So creating resources and assets in the neighborhood is something that I, I think that 2020 is really going to be fruitful and the, yes. and, the, and the fact that these are folks that have decided that they're going to do this long walk together. Mm-hmm. And it's like it's not like any one entity is like, I got the answer. It's like, what does the community want to do? And um, two, three, collaborate. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's a magical space. I'm, I'm kind of like I, before I came here, I was kind of like working on some forms and some um, surveys mm-hmm. uh, that I'm looking to implement later on um, in the, in the, uh, in the spring. Mm-hmm. And so it should be a, we should see some really powerful stuff coming coming down the pipe. Well, I'd be excited uh, yeah. to hear about that. Yeah. That's amazing. And we, I think that's something that is so important. And that's kind of been a theme for the last, what, three, four, five of our shows is mm-hmm. that, you know, no one organization, no, especially no one white nonprofit mm-hmm. um, needs to come in and do things. We've had enough of that. We're right. doing, we, we have a lot of people that come and do things to right. our black communities when we don't need you to do things to to us. Yeah, with us. Yeah. yeah, and you know you're absolutely right, man. That's um that's been like the cancer. Um, yeah. and it actually, I've I've um I, I kind of say like it actually cripples it the does. community because it creates this oh somebody else is gonna come in. Yeah, because you're you're not asking the community, right? And and the community then also doesn't have the buy-in, right? The community doesn't have well, the dedication. How are, gonna, the, how are you gonna tell a neighborhood what they need without asking them? But I, I'm I'm gonna add this to the to the pot. I was talking to um, Andreas Addison's mm-hmm. um, liaison, and we were talking mm-hmm. about oh, shout out Daniel. Yeah, Daniel. Yeah, we were talking about how the city has created this kind of monstrosity wherein. It has always dropped these top-down solutions into the community. Mm-hmm. So now, when people engage with the city, they be like, "Oh, the city ain't do it. The, the city didn't do. The city didn't do. The city needs to do. The city." But it's not always the city's obligation. Yo, that's what I'm trying to we get can at. We do some and shit I, oh. on our own without the city having to have their hand in it. That's what I'm trying to get at. Is that how how has our agency as community members been eroded because mm-hmm. of this top-down kind of philanthropic? You know, we got to have them doing it. Right. But there's so many spaces in between that require just sweat equity from from folks in the community. And like really, honestly, like there's a lot of resources. So Mm -hmm. I've been doing this work a long time. And so there's way more resources out there now than 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 Mm -hmm. there were before. Oh, definitely. And but the challenge is, is getting people helping to build community members, individual confidence levels, efficacy, knowledge base, skills so that they can take advantage of the resources that are accessible and, you know, push it to where they can push it and then connect the city or your philanthropy or, your, you know, these nonprofits or whatever in order to figure out how to fill in the gaps. I'm always kind of challenged with how do we get people to imagine what can be done. Mm-hmm. Like if there was no city hmm. to call on, <laughs> like what, what was you going to do? What would we do? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Would right. you, what would you do? What would, what would you do? And so, and, and so, and that's, that's self, that conversation Getting about folks to think for themselves. Yes. That's, mm-hmm. that's the, that's the most, I think one of the most under realized realities, even in our activist community today is that we, we always, kind of, we're like, we're, we resist and that's rightfully so. We do a lot of resisting and protesting what's happening, but the, what can we do? Yeah. The actual solution based. Direct action, like yeah. in, in community self, uh, self-sufficiency mm-hmm. a- activity. Like what, what is it that we can build? What systems and networks of support, what systems of collaboration? can we create that would meet the needs of communities in the light of there's racist folks that may be in office that ain't putting no money on the federal level down to the city level you know what I mean like what is it that we can create Mm -hmm. that both that bolsters our own economies or and and not just like monetary economies but just like our social capitals And, and within our own power 
It's, why? It, why relinquish our power to this? We give so up so much power to the right. city by saying we have to depend on the city to right. do this. Yeah, yeah. And, I, I, and I can tell you the the guy's honest truth. I got funding from the city of Richmond for the first time in like 2015. All before that, yo, we were cobbling stuff together. And, you know, like there was Josh Epperson with Feast RVA and mm-hmm. them doing dinners and giving people like 700, 800 bucks to do social entrepreneurial, social justice work. Mm-hmm. Like, God forbid, that was like nobody was getting money from the city to do that. But that actually helped me yeah. start our first garden. Yeah, that actually rolls into what I was going to ask you about. How should somebody or could somebody go about setting up a community garden and how much do you have to rely on the city to do that? What kind of roadblocks are there, not just from the city, but from the actual people in the community? So there's a there's a there's a lot of different ways that you can get it going. One way is going through the city's Richmond Grows Gardens program. This brings up a topic about land tenure and land justice. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if we got time to talk about that, but essentially like we'll this, make time. Uh, the city, <laughs> the city has a program that you can apply for a vacant plot of city land and turned it into a community garden. garden yep. It's like $50 for the permit for the first year and then every subsequent year is $25. The requirements is that you have to have members of your community already bought in and what that looks like is like you have to go to your civic association and then talk to your city council person to get them to you know be like yeah this is a great idea and you show them your plan and what you're trying to do. That way is one of the more I don't know accessible ways uh, but you can always start a garden on a piece of private property. The challenge with that is land tenure. It's like whether or not that land will stay available to you to actually grow on. I like to go with city property more than I like to go with private property only because people's uh, agendas change mm-hmm. and you could start a garden on a piece of private property and then five years later or three years later the guy's like I'm ready to sell this mm-hmm. and as a result you know you out back and all the work that you did you know is washed away I need a garage right get so, off so the second the, the the second piece that's now coming online is I'm on the board for the Maggie Walker Community Land Trust yeah and so the land the city's land bank the the Maggie Walker Land Trust also evolved at the same time as the Maggie Walker Land Bank. So the Land Bank is now taking properties that are vacant from the city, and then also um, Henrico and Chesterfield too, which is more recent um, evolutions of the work. The uh, process of community members getting property from the Land Bank and using it for urban agriculture is like currently being written right now. There's a right. there's an application process that's currently, you know, being drafted. So it's a it's a bit different than the application for someone to actually build a home cuz you know, the Maggie Walker Land Trust is designed to actually do affordable housing. So the right. land trust would own the land and then somebody would build the house on top of it and because the person buying the house wouldn't was not it's not buying the land, it keeps the house permanently affordable and so there's been some pushback people don't really like the idea of like the land trust owning the land but i had to note and that i'm not this is i promise you this is not a tangent that the community land trust the idea of a community land trust is actually was uh, the first one in the country was founded by shirley sherrod and her husband charles sherrod in new communities uh, in the form of New Communities Incorporated, which was in Atlanta, Georgia. Charles Sherrod was the first field secretary of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Co- Committee. Him and his wife worked with uh, Stokely Carmichael, Martin Luther King, you know, in, in order to get people to write the vote in the South. But after that, they realized that farmers were getting castigated by local officials or what have you, and people were losing their land through paper terrorism and, you know, racial terrorism and all that type of stuff. So they created this land trust mm-hmm. so that farmers would have land and have also homes that were in this in the same proximity they operated the land trust for several years and then through discrimination from local officials and state officials they end up getting the land the land end up being taken from them but just last year they uh, got i think fifty thousand acres oh, wow I can't. I, I might be misquoting, but they got they, they got some more land, and they just started this new project called Resora, uh, in um, in Atlanta. So uh, wow. I just had the pleasure of giving Shirley Sherrod an award for the Richmond Flower 
fire, flower, and fork. So anyway, the whole uh, the whole idea of a community land trust is rooted in African American social justice work in the Deep South, right? So here in Richmond, people have been like pushing against it. I'm like, yo, man, if you really understood mm-hmm. what land trusts w- come from, yeah, then you would be engaging in this process and be like, yo, you know, this is actually our stuff. This is the tool mechanism that we've been using. While it focuses on affordable housing, the piece around land for food production or green space is super important and it's really the, the way that the stuff is being framed is so that you like a layman a regular person mm-hmm. can go up to the land trust be like yo i want to start a garden or a farm on this people uh, on this people uh on this piece of property and they would make it affordable like it wouldn't be like twenty thousand dollars for a parcel of land it would hmm. be like i don't know maybe a long-term lease for like i don't know fifty dollars mm-hmm. a year or something like that but wow it, but it's really the whole goal is to make it so that it's like a transfer a transferring of land ownership back into community hands. Wow. And, you know, I like that uh, better than I like private. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. And I actually, to be, to be candid, no shade to the city, I like it better than the city. Because it, right, in, yeah. this, in this situation, like community members can have actual title and ownership of, of, it, of, of a parcel of land. The only challenge right now is that the city is not really giving up good property. You know what yeah. I mean? But yeah. my hope is that that'll change with the mayor and his biophilic cities and his commitment to food mm-hmm. justice. That yes, we'll and I mean, see. like on our last show, we we asked LeVar to commit to food yeah. justice, climate justice. Yeah. And he said he would in yeah. 2020. So yeah. I, I feel like we so, keep on it. So the the, mm-hmm. the land is the first thing, but then getting the money to actually start the garden is a, is sometimes a challenge. There's a lot of grants that out here. And I mean, I ain't, well, I'm because, gonna... you know, seeds don't just fall out of the air. Right. You know, you need tools. So that's where I come dirt in compost, with the training program. We have, we'll help you. Yeah. So, so my program is designed to support folks that want to do this stuff. So if you need wood, soil, if you need equipment, tools, you know, we got that. There's other organizations as well. The Richmond Tool Bank has access to tools and et cetera. Um, the seeds is not, you know, the hardest. Richmond piece. Tool Bank, a lot of people don't realize that we have that. Yeah, Mm-mm. right. I mean, they're, they're, they're actually a godsend because um, they'll drop the tools off for you. That's just amazing. And then you, wow. know, you just got to stack them back in the thing and they'll come pick See, them up. See, we so. have all these things that people might think are hidden. There was no food. There. there was no Richmond Tool Bank when, I, when, I, when we started McDonald's. We were right. out here scrambling, trying to get a trailer <laughs> hitch. <laughs> like it was. A How struggle. am I gonna haul mulch over here? No, yeah, seriously, that was crazy. People donate. I mean, it's, it's a lot of different ways. Once you got the tools and you know things, just make sure that you you know got the expertise and some people that actually know what they're doing. You know what I mean? In the mix, because you know we live in a city with toxic soils. I'd be remiss if I didn't say anything about that. Absolutely. Yes, we sure so do. Getting the soil tests and stuff like that is important. But most most importantly, man, get people from your community involved. There's you know some folks that are trying to do this by themselves but what we've learned is that the best practice for any type of community gardening urban farming that this is a communal work mm-hmm. and that it's not none of it really honestly man not nothing agricultural is really successful if you are in a silo on an island of yourself Correct. because it's just a lot of work mm-hmm. and to be frank many hands make light work and it's not just about mm-hmm. you growing some things. It's also about trying to connect that to the market. It's also about doing the programs at the space, you know, to keep the energy rolling. It's about composting. It's about developing products. So, you know, I got homies that then came through the training program that's making pepper jams and basil lemonades and juicing and drinks and stuff like that. And, you know, it, he needs support. He's not he's not out here by himself. He need, there's other elements of the work. And I try to tell people like, you know, the community garden as a space or the urban farm as a space radiates all these other things. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. you know, the more people that you have invested and connected to it, figuring out how they can play a role in it, the more dope it could be. So unfortunately, we only have about five minutes left. <laughs> I mean, I think unfortunately, I could go on. Is it unfortunately, because I mean, we could go on about this for another hour plus. So we have about five minutes. Okay. Uh, what do you want to say in this last five minutes? That, I mean, we can't cover everything, obviously, yeah. but... What do, what do you want your message to be to the community? Oh, my God. About um, what you're doing or what they can do? So I just had... A, my message is that I just had a meeting with somebody about this yesterday. 2020 is the year that I focus more on the deliciousness of it than, like, come out and do a whole bunch of work. 
what I've realized is that people are not really super hyped about coming and getting their hands dirty. Some are. There's some enthusiasts that are ready to go. Clap on your gloves. Don't worry about getting some dirt on your nails. Let's do it. Get a broad fork and throw a tiller in the in the saw. Okay. Yes. But you know, and that's and that you know, if you are those people, welcome. I'm looking forward to seeing you. (laughs) (laughs) But the masses of the most the 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 masses of people are just like they they want to they want to eat something delicious, right? And so like I'm trying to connect with the eat the foodies, the people that are trying to you know make delicious foods, whether it be and 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 really place the emphasis on this whole farm to table thing because while that sounds so cheeky and so cliche, that's all our community ever (laughs) did, right? Exactly. It's like, you know, we talk about farm It's to not table. a novel concept. Right. This yeah. isn't some like, like, you know, hipster concept here. Exactly. This is it's like, you know, this is necessity. This was necessity for people like, you know, collard greens with, you know, some neck bones in there, whatever. I don't eat pork, but whatever. So creating <laughs> spaces where people can have delicious food is kind of like where I'm trying to like push this work so that, you know, and so holding space for black culinary artists, chefs, you know, that type of thing and connecting them to the liberated zones, the green spaces, the urban farms, you know what I mean, the community gardens, and taking what we've grown and putting it into their interpretations is, I think for me, much more, it's like carving out that market share. And I love, because I love things like Bon Appetit and, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, Fireflower and Fork, like those are amazing platforms. But I feel like black people have not, uh, with the exception of the Richmond Black Restaurant Week, mm-hmm. really tapped into the importance of how Richmond has interpreted itself as this foodie as this Facts. foodie town, yeah. and um, I think that we can really revolutionize, you know, not only financially but also just like culturally, mm-hmm. how we're engaging with the city, you know, on and when I not, when I say city, I'm not talking about government, I'm talking about like yeah. geospatially, yes, like, yes, and like doing stuff downtown along the canal, Browns Island, you know what I mean? But like not just emphasizing music, but like, yo, like we eat and we like delicious stuff and there's way there's so many ways that this stuff is being interpreted. So um that's my that's 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 what I want people to kind of glean from this conversation is that food is an act of resistance. You know, how you eat, what you eat, who you buy it from, and that this type of rebellion is is delicious. It's 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 all about mm-hmm. feeding yourself. It's about having amazing experiences. It's about connecting with beautiful people, having connection, deeper connection. Um, that's what's been giving me life along the way. It's like meeting people, connecting with them, doing good work. But then at the same time, man, having conversation and eating. You know what I mean? That's that's really what it is all about. It's like feeding ourselves mentally, spiritually, you know, socially, economically. Like all that stuff is revolving around the work of liberating land and you know, creating community engaged spaces. That's 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 really what it's all about. The connections you make across a dinner table. The connection. Oh, just nothing like it. Powerful. Yeah. Nothing yeah. like it. When we eat. Thank you, Duran. This has been fantastic. Please come back anytime oh, you want. Seriously. I feel like we just scratched the surface. I know we stuff. have. And I'm just like, <laughs> oh, we could just be talking so much more. So we need to do a yes, part two, yes. especially in the springtime when things are sprouting up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We yeah. Need to I want to talk more about that Northside deal once that gets rolling. Yes, please. I feel like there's so much and then I want to get some of the folks that's been at that table in here talking about it too. Mm-hmm. Um, so yep. you know, let's do that. Summertime, it, that that'll that's really a promise. Let's do, let's yeah. do that. All right. So dang, thank you so thank much. Thank you. For this is my first time you. on the show. Oh, no, yeah. welcome, welcome. Oh. And it was a, it was a blessed <laughs> occasion. So yeah. yeah, please definitely come back anytime. Friend, would you like to take us out? As always. Thank y'all for listening. You can continue to engage in this conversation on all social media. And also, what's your social media? Oh, I'm Deron Chavis on everything. Um, So that's Facebook, Instagram. You know, just look up Beautiful RVA. Uh, Look up Happily Natural Day. Um, Everything is at uh, Deron Chavis, at Beautiful RVA, at Happily Natural Day. All right. And we expect to see y'all now every year. We go RVA Durkos. It's fire. Mm. Happily Natural Day is great. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. We're going to have a blast. We sweat sweat ourselves (laughs) to death, but we be enjoying it, man. This year is going to be off the chain. So just as FYI, the conversation about deliciousness and food that we're bringing all Oh, I ate everything. I'm ready. That's what's coming in. Times two. Yeah.
Last year was um, actually my first year going. So really, I'm glad you yeah. came. Oh, it man. was really great. Yeah, I had a Y'all blast. Y'all had to roll me to the car last, last year. <laughs> I ate everything. <laughs> anyway, anyway, <laughs> anyway. See, we just keep on going. I'm telling you, y'all can continue this conversation on all social media at RVA Dirt or start another one. We appreciate you listening. You know what time it is. Flint still has dirty water. Now so does New Jersey. <sighs> RPS is fully funded this year, but we need to start working on next year and a year after that and a year after, after that, that and a year, year after, after that. that. Mm-hmm. And as always, Richmond is still racist, but we're working on it. Working on it. Talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.